This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. More developments in the Mar-a-Lago search case. That's what I'm calling it. But of course, you know, it has to do with government documents, classified, top secret. Some of this country's most important secrets retrieved from the former president's country club. Some of them were being stored in the former president's office in a storage room as well. One thing is for sure, they weren't secured as they were intended to be. Again, these are government documents and government secrets. And so that case is playing out. And just this week, The Department of Justice responded to the judge who cleared the way for a special master. This is a third party that would look through the documents, see which documents belong to former President Trump, which documents belong to the government. A lot of people following this case say appointing a special master is just a way for the Trump team to slow this investigation down, and it has. That ruling by this Florida judge, who was appointed by Mr. Trump, well, it's, it's slowed the investigation down. And now, toward the end of the week, the Department of Justice filed notice that it is appealing this court ruling that appointed a special master or this independent third party to review the documents seized by federal law enforcement at former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. Joining me now is Jeremy Stoll, senior editor at Slate.com. Jeremy, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here, Jeff. Jeremy, where do you think this case is headed? I think that this filing was incredibly important. What it showed was that the Department of Justice is arguing that, one, uh, the government owns these classified docs. They, They belong to the U.S. government and the current uh, White House has authority over them, not the former president. Two, these documents are incredibly important on national security concerns, and the intelligence community is doing a damage assessment of those concerns that Judge Cannon's order allowed, but by cr- precluding a continuing criminal investigation by the Department of Justice, DOJ says that the intelligence community can't do that intelligence assessment properly, and it is even said it has paused that intelligence assessment. This, the ruling earlier in the week, it was, it was a win for President Trump and his legal team and his supporters. Now the Department of Justice is appealing. It goes to the 11th Circuit Court, which from what I understand is filled with Trump appointees. Why do you think DOJ feels confident about about potentially prevailing. Well, first, there's a first step here, which is that the DOJ has requested Judge Cannon to stay 
a single, a small portion of her own ruling. And that portion is the portion that pertains to these 100 plus classified documents that were seized from Mar-a-Lago and to, to not appeal or stay the rest of it, the ruling as it concerns the thousands of other documents that were recovered. So it is making a very uh, slim argument. And I think it is hopeful that because its argument is slim and it stands on a very compelling ground that A, these documents belong to the government and not Donald Trump, and B, uh, they are needed in order to determine if national security has been threatened or is still under threat. Um, they believe that they're going to have a strong argument, possibly even for uh, Judge Cannon to reconsider her original, this portion of her original ruling. Isn't this exactly what the Trump team wants? I mean, there are some legal observers who say this is part of a plan to slow the Department of Justice FBI investigation down. And isn't that what's happening? Absolutely. With Judge Cannon's stay, uh, Judge Cannon's initial order accomplished that. And what the DOJ has done here is it has tried to sidestep that problem for the DOJ as much as possible by limiting its request and by specifically focusing in on only these classifying documents and saying, uh, let us use these classified documents we don't need to use anything else, but we do need to use these classified documents and seeking a quick ruling on this one subset of information while potentially allowing the special master review that uh, both the judge and Trump's lawyers have said could go quickly to go ahead as it pertains to everything else. There was another development in this story this past week that Washington Post reporting that material on foreign nations' nuclear capabilities were it was seized at the former president's country club. What can you tell us about that reporting? What I can tell you is just what you just said and what we, we all read in the Washington Post. The Washington Post got that scoop. It was a significant one. It would seem to confirm an earlier piece of reporting that nuclear secrets were involved. And what is I think what is consequential and interesting about that one point that I can add is I'll just say, uh, one of the president's public defenses, which he has not made it in a single court filing yet, is that he declassified all this information. Well, well, by congressional statute, the one area where the president cannot, on a unilateral basis, declassify things for certain is when it comes to nuclear capabilities and nuclear programs and nuclear defense. Congress has written a law that says uh, it, the president needs to go through the, an, a very precise procedure in order to do that. Well, yeah. I mean, his his supporters have argued that, you know, he could have declassified this information. But what you're saying is uh, if the Washington Post reporting is accurate and we haven't heard anybody dismiss it at this point, but it, anything that has to do with nuclear capabilities, he can't just sort of wave a wand and say, I declassify this. It has to go through a process. That's correct when it comes to the nuclear materials. And what's notable about uh, the DOJ filing on Thursday is that they kind of call this um, declassification possible bluff or argument. And they say, well, it's never been asserted in court um, under any authority that these were these, any of these documents were declassified. Nobody has ever argued that. So, so they currently should be considered classified unless the president wants to make that argument now. They, they should be considered classified unless the president wants to make that argument before this court right now. And what is also interesting about that latest filing from the Department of Justice, I think, is 
you know, clearly investigators have more damaging information uh, and they want to release some of it in their in their filings. Yes. Well, what they what they've asked for specifically to unseal is uh, this the process by which the filter team went through these documents. And what they've said is that uh, the Trump team has already informed them that they will oppose unsealing those matters. So I would imagine that that information will remain under seal. Okay. Jeremy Stahl with Slate.com. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Warren Siegel is with the Anti-Defamation League. The headline from the ADL, leaked Oath Keepers membership list reveals hundreds of current and former law enforcement officers, members of military and elected officials. Oren, thanks for being with us. Thank you. All right. Tell us first about the Oath Keepers and why their membership list matters. So the Oath Keepers are an anti-government organization. Most people are probably familiar with them because several of them um, have been arrested in connection with the insurrection. In fact, they've been arrested for and charged with seditious conspiracy. So this is an organization that looks to um, undermine democratic institutions, promotes wild conspiracy theories, and at the end of the day, is focused on trying to recruit members of law enforcement, the military, and first responders. They do not. Well, as you said, they're anti-government. So they do not believe in the president of the United States, for example. They have this this view of the Constitution uh, that sort of dismisses the power of the presidency. Is that right? So what they believe in is that they are there to defend the Constitution, which means that they want people who have, you know, pledged an oath to defend the country, whether abroad or here in the United States, they want them to double down on on this oath to defend the Constitution. What it does not mean, though, is that people ought to automatically defend the government, right? And so, in fact, they have had issues with one administration after another, right? They believe that there are evil forces that are trying to confiscate guns, uh, create concentration camps in this country, essentially take away people's rights. And that's why, you know, they are very much opposed to, uh, you know, the current administration. They were opposed to the Obama administration. They didn't have any love, by the way, for either of the Bush administrations. I mean, the Trump administration is really the first time that they, you know, found a a like-minded person in their view. Why do you think that they liked the Trump administration, or at least President Trump? So I think to answer that, we kind of need to look at when they were founded. You know, this is uh, around the time that Obama took on, uh, you know, became president. And this was a time where anti-government groups and militias, you know, were having a resurgence, in part because a Democrat was in office, in part because social media was really taking off, enabling them to spread their message and find different people whose message they hoped, uh, you know, their message would resonate with. But it was also in the wake of the financial crisis. 
know, people lost their livelihoods. There was legitimate suffering and discontent. And what happens when people are at their most vulnerable, right? That's when uh, conspiracy theories, disinformation, you know, are able to, uh, you know, appeal to people. So in a sense, um, you know, all those things combined enabled their sort of scapegoats of the government to resonate with a broader group of people. You did not mention the fact that President Obama was the first black president. Was this a reaction to that as well, his race? So I think for some it, it, it was, uh, but not necessarily for all. Right. I mean, the Oath Keepers uh, agenda and their beliefs are, are different than sort of classic white supremacist movements and beliefs. But there's no doubt that there's xenophobia and perhaps even racism among the ranks. Um, in fact, you know, a lot of what Oath Keepers have focused on is anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-Muslim sentiment. They sort of supported birther conspiracy theories, which very much targeted uh, Obama at the time. Um, so, you know, I think the types of people that join the Oath Keepers, they're not all exactly the same. But when you're talking about people who believe in conspiracies and disinformation and have these wild agendas, um, hatred, racism and bigotry is not far behind. All that said, <laughs> let's focus now on this leaked Oath Keepers membership list. Here's why that matters, what you just said. Here's why it's important, because on this list are hundreds of current and former law enforcement officers, members of military and elected officials. And you're already seeing the fallout across the country with this list out there. So give us an example of who's on this list. Yeah, so this list that we put together, our analysis... Um, was based on leaked membership information uh, that came out um, in 2021 by a distributed denial of secrets, this, this group that leaked the information. And there were over 38,000 names on this membership list. What we at ADL did was literally go through each one of, of these names and emails and phone numbers and try to identify those who are in positions of authority, right? Those that should have the public trust, law enforcement, military, first responders, elected officials, et cetera. And so as we were going through our data, combing through, you know, public records and trying to match essentially information with the names on that membership list, we identified 373 individuals we believe are currently serving in law enforcement agencies. Um, in addition to those actively serving, we identified over a thousand individuals we believe previously served in law enforcement. We uh, identified 81 individuals across the country are either holding office or running for public office. Now, this runs the gamut from local office like mayors, town council members, school board members to state you know, representatives and senators. And lastly, we also find found over a hundred uh, current military members. And so this showed the degree to which, at least gauged through this membership list, 
that the Oath Keepers were able to, you know, uh, exploit the current situation and attract people in positions of power. And that is concerning, especially to those who have had suspicions of extremists infiltrating the ranks of the military or law enforcement when you see images of, for example, black people uh, in use of excessive force. There, there has always been that concern. Does this, does this confirm those concerns? I think the findings of this report are alarming because they identify a large number of individuals on the Oath Keepers membership list who hold sensitive positions across the country, positions that are supposed to protect all Americans, no matter what they believe, right? no matter who they are, no matter what part of the country they're from. And so having individuals who are part of an extremist movement or who show up on a membership list, regardless of you know, how much they were actually actively involved, further undermines faith in our public institutions at a time when public trust is already eroding. Uh, we can't forget these individuals, right, whether you're law enforcement or an emergency service you know, personnel, have access to information that not everybody has, are looked to to protect communities. And if they believe in these things, you know, it creates doubt, I think, in the mind of people in that community. And we're, we're just talking about law enforcement, military here. What about in other professions, the business world, or say an insurance company, for example? I mean, it, it sounds like if you look at the entire membership list, you'll find people from all walks of life, teachers as well. So that's true. I mean, we know that Oath Keepers will, you know, accept anybody in their ranks. I mean, extremists, you know, can't be too picky. Um, and so we know that there, you know, are sort of people with average everyday jobs that, you know, support this 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 group as well. What we focused on, however, are, you know, unique professions, law enforcement, military, elected officials, where the expectation is different than somebody who's an accountant or, you know, owns a grocery store or a beautician, right? We have higher expectations and responsibilities that we put on people whose job it is is to protect communities. I think that's what makes this particularly concerning. Your focus is on people in these leadership, law enforcement positions, military. But what this membership list suggests is that there are oath keepers in other professions, that, that there are oath keepers in other professions as well. That's correct. Uh, you know, oath keepers will accept, um, you know, pretty much anybody who wants to be part of them. So, you know, the what we focused on, though, in our report are specifically, you know, people in significant positions of power, right? And so it doesn't mean that, you know, accountants, grocery store owners, beauticians, um, that are oath keepers is not, you know, a concern, but it's a completely different concern when those who, you know, subscribe to their membership list or support them in other ways have access to information about communities, are supposed to have their trust, are supposed to protect them, 
and yet believe in these ideas. That's why we focused on this specific subset. All right. Sean Mobley, who is the sheriff of Otero County, Colorado, he has said uh, since this list was made public, he says he has said that their views are far too extreme for me. He told the AP in an email, the Associated Press, that he has distanced himself from the Oath Keepers, and he did so years ago over concerns about its involvement in the standoff against the federal government at Bundy Ranch. So the Oath Keepers were involved in that as well. Yeah, I think it's important to remember about the Oath Keepers that they were extremists when they were founded. They're extremists today. This membership list goes from 2009 to 2018. So at any time that somebody subscribed, right, this is what we're looking at. Now, I think one of the reasons that we put out this report is not only to shed light on efforts to undermine and infiltrate our democratic institutions, but ultimately in this moment in time is to provide opportunities for accountability. So if people you know, are going to sort of reject the Oath Keepers as a result of this, um, that's important. We also know that you know, our information is based on membership lists. We can't say to what degree somebody was active, not active, did they do more than sign up, right? We just don't know that. But this is a snapshot. These are numbers. And I will say one last thing about signing up to a membership list. The Oath Keepers benefit, right? 38,000 people. They feel like people are responding to their ideas when they see their membership list rise. So even if somebody did it just to sort of investigate, you know, there are consequences to that that benefit the Oath Keepers. Orin Siegel with the ADL. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Jeff. John Cook is the co-author of the Conspiracy Theory Handbook. John, thanks for being with us. Hi, Jeff. Great to talk to you. Boy, if I had a dollar for every time I had to correct someone about some conspiracy theory that they heard that they believe is true, and you got to tell them, no, no, that's not true, I tell you. There are so many of them out there these days, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But first, why did you write that book? Is is it because is it because these conspiracy conspiracy theories you just hear about them so often? It it actually happened as a bit of a coincidence. Uh, we began the handbook, um, myself and my colleague Stephen Lewandowski, because we do all the research into the psychology of conspiracy theories and misinformation and like we just publish study after study on how how what are the most effective ways to counter misinformation but not your average person doesn't read all these scientific studies so we wanted to take all that research and make it accessible to the general public so we started writing this conspiracy theory handbook as basically a a plain language summary of all the research into conspiracy theories we started doing it in late 2019 and then we were we finished it early 2020 and then the pandemic struck and the conspiracy theories just started exploding and we thought we need to get this published asap because um, this research is needed more than ever 
All right, so the the handbook, it's not like reading the Odyssey. I mean, it's it's 12 pages, right? So it's a relatively quick read. Yeah, that's the whole point. Um, like scientific research is usually really in-depth and um, and complicated, hard to read. Um, but good science communication takes all the complexity and boils it down to its core elements. doesn't oversimplify it, but but simplifies it to the key things that people need to be able to practically respond to a challenge like conspiracy theories. So that was our goal with the handbook. Okay. I'm going to put, I'm going to put your theories in the handbook to the test or, or how you respond to a conspiracy theory. Are you ready for this? Uh, Put me on the spot. Uh, Bring it on. Okay. Okay. All right. So let me look around to see what I could find, what I can find. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. All right. Well, this didn't take long. All right. Back in 2020, Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff to former President Donald Trump, he tried to enlist top government officials to investigate this claim. Okay, that, well, that the election was tampered with, and here's what he wanted them to look into. Here's one example. That China had hacked voting machines via special kinds of thermostats. Okay, so that's one example. How do you respond to that? The general rule of thumb with conspiracy theories is look for the red flags of conspiratorial thinking. And we list the seven red flags in the handbook. And it's it's hard to remember. So we came up with a a catchy acronym, CONSPIRE, um, like standing for like C stands for contradictory claims. O stands for overriding suspicion. Uh, In this case, um, one of the telltale traits of a conspiracy theory is villains. Villains with nefarious intent. That's the N in conspire. So when you see a a theory, a claim that that has um, villains, usually villains conspiring together secretly with some monstrously evil intent... um, that is at least a, on the face of it a red flag of a potentially baseless conspiracy theory, and and that's not to say that real conspiracies don't exist. There there have been real conspiracies, but um, it's it's at least a red flag to give it a closer look. All right, so so in this case, the villain would be China, or would it be the thermostats? <laughs> well, well, the villain would be China. The evil intent would be subverting the election. Um, and the thermostats are just the, the mechanism by which they do it. Got it. All right. So the former White House chief of staff wanted top intelligence officials to to look into, to discuss this claim that China had hacked voting machines via special kinds of thermostats. All right. 
So that's one example. Another relevant um, trait of conspiratorial thinking here is overriding suspicion. Um, that's the O in conspire, obviously. And we see this in conspiracy theories all the time. Uh, whenever you see someone who just doesn't believe uh, scientific data or reports coming from scientific institutions, uh, or in this case, election results, like they just don't believe the results. And no matter what um, evidence you supply to show that the results are reliable, they always believe that something must be wrong. That, that That's the S in conspire. Uh, th those when you see a couple of these traits all together, like in this case, it's overriding suspicion and nef nefarious intent, and something must be wrong. That, then it's it's starting to add up to what looks like a baseless conspiracy theory. Hmm. And and what if what if you're talking to someone and you debunk their conspiracy theory, but they stick to it anyway? They keep talking about it. At that point, do you try and seek help for that person? Like, is that in the handbook? At what point, or do you just give up and walk away? Yeah. It, well, firstly, um, we we recognize in the handbook that it's extremely difficult to change the mind of a conspiracy theorist because they are so suspicious. And any information you give them that disproves the, the conspiracy theory, they um, basically... Uh, incorporate that information into their conspiracy theory. They'll say, well, that's, you know, that's exactly what they want you to believe. Well, they generated that evidence to trick me. So it is really hard to, ch to change the mind of someone who has overriding suspicion of, of information and evidence. So what do you do in that situation? We do uh, propose a couple of um, possible uh, strategies. Uh, and it's, the first thing is have a conversation with empathy ridicule never changes a person's mind. What kind of role does social media play in spreading these conspiracy theories? You'll find that even modern conspiracy theories like QAnon, a lot of the DNA in those conspiracy theories date back to like medieval anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So they, they just take these old tropes and um, rebrand them in, in new ways. So um, conspiracy theories have always been with us. The difference now is social media amplifies them and mainstreams them, and that's that's why we're hearing about them a lot more. Social media removes gatekeepers so that one individual can potentially reach millions of people. And also the algorithms in the social media platforms also can help amplify them as well. Misinformation spreads faster than accurate information on social media. It's just more clickable. It's it's clickbait, basically. And so so studies have found that misinformation and conspiracy theories, they, they are more likely to be liked and clicked and shared. And likes, clicks and shares is revenue for the social media platforms. So they actually have a vested interest in misinformation spreading. What, uh, what is the most important lesson that readers of this handbook should take from it? Well, that's a, that's a good question because I guess there's a lot to take from it. I guess probably the thing that I would say is, a, is a most important to take in mind is just build our own resilience, inoculate ourselves against misinformation and conspiracy theories. And the way we do that is learn the techniques used to mislead. Inoculation is, is really the, the kind of one of the big principles of the conspiracy theory handbook and, and my research into misinformation. Uh, and I put a lot of work into 
teaching people the different techniques used to mislead, whether it's general misinformation or conspiracy theories. Once people know these techniques, they can spot them and they're less likely to be misled. Is it fair to say that not all conspiracy theories are created equal? For example, you know, I I kind of believe some of these, maybe you call them conspiracy theories about Martians, right? I, I do believe that there is some other being in the universe. Is that a conspiracy theory? I mean, uh, scientists don't really know for sure, right? And Martians. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, well, the existence of aliens is not a conspiracy theory. Believing that the government have a spaceship hidden in Area 51 or Roswell or whatever, and that they've they've conspired to, um, you know, hide all the evidence or whatever. That would be a conspiracy theory. All right, so I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right, that's good. So what about you? Is there something that you have talked about in the past that could qualify as a conspiracy theory that you kind of maybe believe? The thing I struggle with is the difference between a baseless conspiracy theory and real conspiracies, because there have been real conspiracies like, the tobacco industry conspired to hide the harmful effects or the addictive effects of smoking from the public, and they were convicted uh, of conspiracy. Uh, Volkswagen conspired to hide um, the polluting effects of their cars, and they got busted. So there are examples of real conspiracies, and how do you tell the difference between them? Uh, For me, um, one thing I talk about is how the fossil fuel industry, similarly to the tobacco industry, have misled the public about about the effects of burning fossil fuels on climate change. And there is documented evidence that the fossil fuel industry knew from their own internal research uh, back in the 50s, 60s and 70s, they knew that burning fossil fuels caused climate change. But in the 90s, they decided to misinform the public. So it's, it's on the public record that they knew and then they misled. Um, and so what's the difference between that, saying that the fossil fuel industry conspired to deceive us and a baseless conspiracy theory? Uh, and to answer that question, you really need to look at the the difference between real conspiracies and baseless conspiracy theories. Well, and I think you, you raise a, a really good point as we start to wrap things up here is that there are people out there who spread these rumors or conspiracy theories because they're trying to shape a message and they want people to believe it and to buy into it for their own means. Uh, And they spread it through social media or they talk about it on television and it spreads and it benefits them. Um, And so these, yeah, these theories, these conspiracy theories that aren't based in fact, can, can, can cause serious damage in a democracy. Yeah, um, I think that that is really the founding kind of principle of my own research, which is that a well-functioning democracy depends on a well-informed population. And so we don't want people to just become cynical and skeptical of all information. Otherwise they'll reject science as well. So it's not about don't trust anything. It's about be able to distinguish between accurate, reliable information 
and misinformation. And it's, it's really about equipping people with the critical thinking skills to do that. John Cook, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Great to talk to you, Jack. This is CBS News Flash. I'm Matt Piper in New York. She was Britain's longest reigning monarch. Queen Elizabeth II dead at the age of 96. She was not born to be queen, becoming the heir to the throne when she was just 10 years old. Now her first son Charles has ascended the throne. Buckingham Palace says the new monarch will be known as King Charles III. I would be remiss if we wrapped up this program without talking about the queen who passed away this past week at the age of 96. What an incredible reign. I'm one of those people, like many of you, who sort of fascinated by the royal family, the longevity of her reign. And I think, by all accounts, the success of her reign. That's not to say that there weren't some issues with uh, her popularity, but all in all, it is fair to say that she was beloved. Queen Elizabeth, dead at the age of 96. Here's Major Garrett. Harry Truman was the first to host Elizabeth, then Princess, saying the royal couple, quote, captured the hearts of all of us. And so it would be for decades to come. America, a country that threw off monarchy, captivated by a monarch for the ages. Elizabeth hosted Richard Nixon inside Buckingham, visible in the background, a young Prince Charles. Later, a grand visit to the U.S. for the bicentennial. Gerald Ford and the Queen danced with elegance and ease. Another enduring image, the Queen and Ronald Reagan riding horseback at Windsor Castle. George H.W. Bush would later play host, but because no height adjustment was made at the podium, the Queen's remarks were obscured. She joked about it in an address to Congress. I do hope you can see me today from where you are. George W. Bush welcomed the Queen and nearly aged her by some 200 years. You helped our nation celebrate its bicentennial in, 17, in 1976. <laughs> Barack Obama continuing a trend where U.S. presidents have had difficulty navigating royal protocol, mistakenly spoke over the British national anthem. To the Queen. Donald Trump would later commit a very public gaffe, walking in front of the Queen and then stopping, forcing her to walk awkwardly around him. Last year, President Biden met the Queen for tea at Windsor Castle. Now, we could have shown you so many more touch points between the White House and Buckingham Palace, but what emerges is a deep relationship, personal and continuous, between this Queen and the American presidency. That is America Changed Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. Don't forget that you can hear us on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever.
Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.